0: For those who are with us here in our morning service, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter number 5 once again. We continue our studies together in the Sermon on the Mount, and we look together today as we continue our thoughts that Jesus gives us as followers of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at some things about being light today. We talked about salt the last time we were together, and uh, these, you know, these are messages that almost kind of preach themselves, you know. I could let you read this and and the Holy Spirit would move on you, no doubt. You would be able to glean something from the words of Jesus. But I think a deeper digging and just maybe a perspective that you haven't thought about or, or something along the way that I can contribute. Or a reminder that, oh yes, anything that the Holy Spirit would do through these. Don't let them become so familiar. You've read them so many times, they're very familiar. Don't let them become trite. There are, there are powerful words that our Savior said. And let it resonate with your heart. And determine to go out and be what Jesus would have you to be. Say yes, Lord. Yes. So you're in Matthew chapter number 5. If you're listening outside of the services, you're listening to the Broomfield Baptist Church. It's the Sunday morning service. And this is the pastor bringing the morning message. And we're in Matthew chapter number 5. You can follow along beginning in verse number 1. And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples... "...came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and taught them, saying, "'Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth.'" And be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And he giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand your word clearly, that I would be emptied of myself, cleansed of sin, filled with the Spirit. Lord, may your word have precedence and the preeminence among us. Hide me behind Jesus. Hide me behind Calvary. And may he speak, Lord. And may you move on hearts and do your work as only you can. Draw us to Jesus. Help us to trust him more, to rely on him and lean on him, that ourselves might fade away and our own strength would wane and he would become our strength. May we take his yoke and may we learn of him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Now, some months ago, probably longer than that, I, I began with an illustration about street lamps, but it was actually over in England, so I'm going to use American street lamps today if I can, so a little bit of variation on that. But those who were with us uh, during that journey, you, you recall me talking about the lamp lighters and how I was reintroduced to that when we went as a family to go see the new Mary Poppins, and, and they had the lamp lighters instead of the chimney sweeps. It was kind of a spin on the old, the old plot, the old story there. Well, years ago in uh, many American cities, how they were lighted, uh, it's an interesting thing. If you like trivial things and you like to read about how, how things develop, uh, I would encourage you to go Google up the, uh, the streetlights and the history of streetlights in America. Uh, you'll have plenty of reading, and for some of us, it'll be good reading to put us to sleep on all the different brands and kinds and this and that and all the numbers. Don't get lost in the chronicles of it all. Just look at the pattern of how streetlights develop. When America first began having street lamps, we can attribute that, as far as I can decipher, to good old Benjamin Franklin, the inventor, right? So, Benjamin Franklin, so some say that American street lights developed in Philadelphia and went out from there. They were the candle, you know, and so you'd have the four walls around the candle, and they even got so fancy as to be able to replace the glass. If one of them broke on a side, you didn't have to take the whole thing apart, but you had to light those, and the wind could come and blow them out. Many streets were lighted with just those candles. And then after that, it progressed. And over in Britain, they started, and in England, they started using the gas lights. And so those are the ones that we remember that are that kind of catch our fancy, right? The old gas lighters. And, and uh, they would go through, they'd have the, the lantern lighter, and he would go through the streets and just light that. So as American cities were lighted, uh, it wasn't with the mercury lights. You know, we've got halogen lights, we've got CFLs, we've got LEDs, we've got all kinds of fancy stuff today. There's a company, King Company. If you see the lights in Broomfield, they're they're very archi- architecturally designed. Uh, they look pretty, they look nice. Those are probably, now I don't know for sure, so don't quote me on it, but they're probably made by a company called King Lights because they get more fancy, more decorative uh, than just the standard mercury street lights. I remember the street light in front of my, my mom and papa's house, or my mom and papa's house growing up. And uh, all the, you know, bugs that would gather around that was one of those old mercury lights and and some of you might remember those. Well, back to the days of gas lights now, American streets being lighted, uh, the gas lamps, no electric, no electric eye to turn all of them on simultaneously. Instead, a lamplighter, he'd stroll down the street each evening at dusk and he would light one individually. An old gentleman, long since dead, remembered as a young boy watching the lamplighter in his city make his way back and forth down the street. And this is what he recounted. He said, I watched him bring each lamp to a soft yellow glow and then move on to the next. After a few minutes, he disappeared into the deepening twilight. I could no longer make him out, but I would always know where he was by the avenue of light that left behind him they've left behind them. Let your light so shine before men that they may see. Because without light, we are in utter darkness. Total darkness. Without hope. Jesus is the light of the world. John tells us about that light in his gospel. After he describes Jesus as being the word that was in the beginning with God and yea, was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And so He is the light of the world. Now John the Baptist is also talked about in John chapter 1. That He came to bear witness to that light. He was not that capital L light. But He was to bear witness to that light. And, first, and John chapter 1 and verse number 9 tells us that it's the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Jesus himself stood one day and said, I am the light of the world. With him we need not walk in darkness. So how does that light disperse? Well, we need candlesticks. We need need lanterns. We need lamps to carry that light and leave an avenue, leave a path of, of righteousness for others to follow, that they may see God in us, that they may see the way and walk in it and find salvation. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's dark. How are you going to find the Father? The only way is through the light of Christ. And may I submit to you that that light shines the brightest and the best through His disciples that are living out the Beatitudes before a lost and dying world. Now, before this, Jesus talked about believers being salt. These are the two illustrations that He uses to open His sermon. Now, He's getting to the main point. The main point is if our righteousness is going to do anything for us, in God's eyes, it must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees of His day. It must exceed mechanical Christianity. It must go deeper than the surface. It must be a transformation from the inside out, if we have any hope of righteousness getting us to glory. Otherwise, it's just our own tainted glory. And we know from Isaiah 64 that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's before the Lord's eyes. That's a powerful, revolting thought that Isaiah gives. Isaiah 64. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So as much good as we would try to do, as much righteousness as we would attempt to live in our own
1: and on our own,
0: It's still a filthy rag. What is that filthy rag, Isaiah? What are you talking about? Well, in Isaiah's day, leprosy was rather common. We've overcome a lot with leprosy, but leprosy isn't stamped out. There are lepers today. And leprosy is a grotesque disease. It's a flesh-eating disease. And in this day, they were struggling against that, maybe like we're struggling with other things, like cancer and and Alzheimer's and different terrible, terrible diseases that just wrap the body And and so you have people that would contract leprosy and they would be ousted from the entire community. They would have to live outside the gates of the cities and, uh, and just live off anyone that would come by and try to help them. And sometimes the leprosy, from what I've read and studied, would get so bad that they would lose feeling in a limb, a hand, per se, or something of that nature. So it's dangling from their body. They can't feel anything, and sometimes they would bump it or hit it hard the wrong way and they would open a flesh wound then and they would begin to have uh, concerns about infection. And and yeah, we're talking about bad stuff because you're dealing then with gangrene and possible amputation. They don't have the kind of tools and stuff that we do today. So this is very, very dangerous if a leper does this to their limb. So what they would do is they would bandage those limbs up and they would wrap uh, think like mummy cloth, okay, think like those kind of bandages. Maybe a large ace bandage if you used those before to maybe put something around. They would use those linens, they would use those claws, and they would wrap that around their diseased limb so that if they bumped it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be detrimental to the limb because they couldn't feel it anyway, and they might even just bleed right there and bleed out. After they were done, they would take that rag off, and that is a filthy rag. Now let that sink in. All our righteousnesses, all the righteousness that we could do, are as filthy rags. Leprosy in the Bible is a picture of sin. All have sin and come short of the glory of God. So many people are racked with sin. It's like a cancer spiritually to them, and they try to bandage it over with these righteous works. It'll never measure up before God. Only the pure, spotless, untainted righteousness of Christ applied to your account can get you in you must be not just not just healed you must be made whole through faith in Christ and his righteousness is then given to you all of that is cleansed and forgiven as far as the east is from the west that's the forgiveness in Christ now someone who's been poor in spirit has already come down that road they've understood there's nothing I can do to work my way back to God I am completely depraved. I am dependent on him and him alone for salvation. So these beatitudes are written to disciples, not to someone who's lost, not to someone who hasn't found Jesus. They found him. He went up into a hill. They came themselves willingly to him and he taught them. These are people that are following Jesus and he tells them, you must be poor in spirit. You must mourn. You must be meek. You must... Hunger and thirst after righteousness. You must be a peacemaker. You that follow me. You say you're going to follow me. You do this and you will find blessing. That's the only way to find blessing. Ultimately culminating in what he said about being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not our own righteousness. Our righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. We're not talking about fallen righteousness. So as Jesus leads up to his Main emphasis, main thought about being transformed from the inside out. You've heard that it has been said of old time. Thou shalt or thou shalt not. And he'll give a series of these. He goes on to say, not that he's doing away with the Mosaic law. He's fulfilling all the law. The Mosaic law served the purpose of being a schoolmaster to get us to Christ. To show us we need a redeemer. That mankind can never live up to that standard. Jesus Christ says, but I say unto you, it's the inward that God sees. It's not the letter of the law that is that God is so much concerned about, although that's important. and He did, he did write it down to be kept. It's not the letter of the law. Paul tells us that the letter of the law kills. But Jesus is going to drive us toward the spirit of the law, working that from the inside out. This is part of the gift that's given to us when we trust Christ. To be able to have the Holy Spirit in us. To lead us and guide us. It's a a mysterious thing almost that works. In that how can God live in us? We're baptized with him the moment we trust Christ. We're saved. And he takes up residence in us. And it's that part of us. It's that new creature. It's that new man. It's that new person that lives for God. We still battle with the old nature. But the old man is crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, Paul said. Yet not I, but Christ Christ liveth in me how do you attain unto this blessed life through christ through christ being submitted to him following him when you get to the place where you have been living the beatitudes and it's culminated in persecution whether it's from those that you're you know are on this side of one argument or that side of the other argument And you're trying to be a peacemaker. Uh, People don't understand why you're giving mercy to somebody that doesn't deserve mercy. Or why you're being meek when you need to be standing up for yourselves. And and it's a dog-eat-dog world and you shouldn't be a doormat. You shouldn't be a doormat as a Christian. Jesus isn't saying be a doormat. He's saying let God take care of it and be meek. Exercise power. Exercise the authority you have in the word of God under control. As you're living that out, people are going to Disagree. You're going to have to tell people they're wrong because there's a right way and a wrong way and God has told us the right way. I can't tell you the right way. If I tell you the right way, it might just wind up being wrong because there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, seemeth right, seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And so it's not by my own wisdom or, or by my own ability to reason it out or to find it. There's one source where I can know what's right and what's wrong and what's black and what's white. And it's clearly revealed in the scriptures. And so when we take a stand for this, we come to certain scriptural convictions and positions, and people disagree with us, and we get called by all kinds of names because they don't understand the position we're coming from. It's not that we hate anyone, it's not that we dislike any person per se, but we do, we should, we ought to hate sin. And we ought to be able to know it when we see it. And we take a stand because we see the destruction that it brings. So, it's not about the person, it's about the commission. It ought to move us, it ought to anger us when people do bad things. When someone comes into your property unannounced and takes things that do not belong to them and you don't get upset about it, you didn't really care about what you had. It ought to bother you when people do wrong things and step over the line, they cross the boundary. And now there's sin and people hurt. Now that's just a simple illustration back to the basics. Apply that now across the spectrum and look at how people are treating to each other today. How many boundaries are really being honored? How much how, how much space is really being protected? No, I'm not going politically. I'm not going where you're thinking. All right, just leave, leave the wall to the government. All right, they're going to take care of all that. But boundaries are, boundaries are important. Boundaries are important. Jesus said, You're the salt of the earth. If that salt, now the salt he's describing, I believe, has a tendency to uh, lose its ability to be able to use for seasoning in the household, and so then it's cast out, trodden underfoot. It's just street salt, then Uh, there's no purifying qualities to it. It's not holding back any corruption or disease. It's not doing anything. It's just cast out, and people walk on it. If your Christian life is not burning others or causing them to thirst, if it's not burning out sin, if it's not holding back corruption, then your Christianity, your discipleship, your following Jesus is just going to be cast out and everybody's going to walk over it nobody's even going to know you're there. Unless, you know, it's a kid maybe looking down, oh, what's this white powder? He's not even going to know it's salt. The world is, is going to be no different. They're just going to walk right by and never even find Jesus, never even know, That there's a right way that leads to life. Now let's look at the light of the world. This light. Disciples are the light of the world. Verses 14 to 16. That means we are in a key position. If we're light, God has already positioned us to be seen. Just by living for Him, you're going to stand out. You will. We need people that will stand out for Christ today. I'm grieved at the state of the public education affairs and the system there. It's it was broken. It started to be broken a long, long time ago, and people have tried to remedy it. We have great teachers in the public school system, uh, you know, scattered here and there. They are doing all they can, and they're believers. They believe Jesus. They're trying to reach kids, and they're kind of under the radar, you know. And, and they got to do things carefully. I can tell you horror stories across, you know, from coast to coast of. Of teachers that have stood up, or something's finally, you know, embraced their faith enough to where they have to put their foot down, and then they, you know, they have to go through all the repercussions and the persecution and everything that comes by that. But thank God, you know, that teachers are willing to stick their neck out like that sometimes. Thank God for students that I mean, hey, this is they might not get to choose, but they believe the Bible and they go and they carry their Bible and they get made fun of because they sit at the lunch table and read their devotions. Thank God. Now, I, I don't, I'm not a proponent of you know, evangelizing the public school system with your own Christian children. That's a dangerous road to travel. You're going to send them on an indoctrination bus that's going to take them, and they're going to get a whole worldview that clashes with everything that's here. So uh, I'm not a proponent of that. But what I am saying is we need Christians to be salt and light. You know, you go to the dentist's office or you go to the doctor to get a checkup and, hey, lo and behold, there's some scriptural emphasis there. Maybe it's not quoting verse by verse, but there's some, there's some godly principles permeating that doctor's office from the top down. It makes a difference. You go to a clinic to get help and you find out the worldview they're coming from is a view that has a high view of sanctity of life because you learn that from a, a biblical worldview instead of one that devalues human life. There's a big difference in the two clinics that would take the differing approaches. Salt and light. We need Christians to be salt and light. We are in a position to be seen. If you read verses 14 and 15, you'll see that. And I don't have time to go through it. and I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but I did come across a lengthy article about light. And I'm just going to put that, uh, put that out for you if you want to go look it up. There's plenty of Bible encyclopedias and Bible dictionaries. That you can go read the article and see all about light, piercing darkness, and, and all the things that it does, and driving and dispelling. And, and so I'm kind of building on Sunday school here, aren't I? But we're grown-ups. You can understand light to the extent that I can. I, I, I'm not a scientist. I haven't evaluated it and, and looked at it in a laboratory setting. But I flip the switch, and I understand current and electricity enough to know that the circuit connected to the power board. And that's how I get you know things illuminated and I understand at least the ability to see light so don't miss the forest for the trees understand Jesus is saying here you're light you're meant to be seen uh, the Baker Encyclopedia has a, one of the longest articles I read I wouldn't endorse everything that is in that Baker article but uh, it's a good place to start perhaps the the ISBE the uh, Inter- International Standard Bible Encyclopedia now Don't go after the revised version. Okay, get the older one, like back in the turn of the 19th century version. The older ISBE is going to be better. So get the older one. That has a good article in it about light. Other other Bible dictionaries will help you. Jesus is giving his illustration here. Now, as preachers, you know, I began this morning with the Scripture. And after the Scripture, I challenged your thinking with an illustration about light the streetlights and lighting those lamps and the avenue of light behind it. Jesus here has given his introduction with the Beatitudes, and he is now following up with some illustrations in his sermon to drive the point home. If you live this way, there's going to be an outcome. You're going to be blessed. Future, there's all kinds of future promises. God's going to, God's going to be with you. You're going to face persecution, and before he talks about The law and the extent of that and what we do as believers internally from the inside out and in living the law, he's going to say, here's an illustration about salt. Here's an illustration about light. A master teacher using object lessons, light. And on that hillside, I don't know what kind of lights would have been in their purview, but he talks about his uh, city that's set on a hill. This is his first illustration. Now, I just, I just can imagine where they're sitting. I don't know exactly what time of day it is. The text doesn't specify. Maybe it's early morning. Maybe it's night. Maybe it's midday. Maybe it's dark. Wouldn't this be a powerful illustration of Jesus' is somewhere situated, if you he say he's on the horns of Hattin or, or maybe on the northern shore of Galilee where the, where the church of the Beatitudes is today, uh, maybe he's on that hillside. Well, there are some key peaks, some key high elevated areas, and in his day, perhaps there would have been a city high enough that as he's saying these words, they're looking over his shoulder and seeing a city set on a hill lit up with all the lamplight that they would have had burning in their streets. So right there before them, they're seen. Uh I saw, it was probably just a satellite image, but it was a Almost like a drum shot. You know how they're doing those drum shots anymore and it just kind of flies over. It was flying over the earth at night and it was dark. And have you seen that? The globe, it's like the whole globe. And I looked and it caught my eye and I said, I know where that's at. It was unmistakable. I saw the the leg. I saw the boot. I saw the football. I was looking at Rome. I was watching Italy at night. And I could tell right where Rome was. You know why? Because it was whiter and brighter than all the other cities on the coast. in Sicily and, and all of that out there. And the boot, of the, the boot of the peninsula there. You know, whatever you call that. I don't know. It's terrible terms. But you know where I'm talking about. You can point to it on the map, right? That boot was lit up. in Sicily, that island, it was, it was all lit up. Rome was the brightest. I mean, it was white. White bright. And then it just kept zooming over. And I thought, the city sat on a hill. How powerful is that? In a dark world, who is it that can see our light? This city that's set on a hill, there have been two cities that have been suggested, I guess, more than others. You have Sepphoris, that's four miles north of Nazareth. Uh, That would be a large, sophisticated city in its day. You've got Roman-style buildings, plainly visible uh, to everybody in nearby Nazareth. Others have, have, uh, rather than Sepphoris, they've talked about, Gamela, which is on the Golan Heights. I would probably lean towards that one. The north end of the Sea of Galilee. You could look across the lake and uh, it would be seen by Jesus and those watching about him on the Golan Heights. A city set on a hill. And living illustration. A living sermon right there. If you're following me, that's what you're like to a dark world, is what Jesus is saying. So as lights, we have to shine. We have to shine, as one preacher put it, purposefully. We must have purpose in our shining. There's a potential for failure of light. And he went on, this preacher did, to say that the bushel speaks of busyness and the bed, comparing Luke. If you look at Luke's version, he says you don't hide it under a bed, put it under a bed. He said the bed speaks of laziness and the the bushel speaks of, of busyness. And I thought, that'll preach. He's a good preacher, he's got this thing down. The the busyness, we get so busy that it drowns out our light. The bed, we put it under the bed, we just never go, we never get up, we never do anything, and people can't see our light. That's a good way to illustrate it, I think. You don't put it under a bushel. You don't put it under a bed. No, as Christians, we hold aloft the light of witness in a dark, dark hour. And Colorado needs your light. Denver needs your light. Boulder needs your light. Broomfield needs your light. And let it shine. Don't put it under a bushel. Don't get so busy that you can't be seen. Don't become lazy and, and, and not able to be used by God. Now, he gives the illustration, and then, as a good preacher does, Jesus runs right to the application. If that's the case, if you're light, The application is, shine. That's revolutionary, isn't it? That was new information. You never heard that before. Yeah, you came to an old-fashioned Baptist church that just told you to let your light shine. Yeah, these are old things, but they need to be repeated and they need to be said. Because so many Christians today are not shining. They're not. And I'm just as guilty as the next person sometimes with that. Why? Why do we let our light shine? Jesus said there's a couple of purposes in this. Number one, that they may see your good works. And some have come to this and done an end run to the social gospel or something else of that nature and said, look, you see, he says you can go to heaven by good works. You missed the context. Remember, we already talked about these being disciples. They're not getting to heaven by their good works. No, they're following the kind of, uh, the kind of teaching that would, that would be found in the book of James. Faith without works is dead, being alone. So the faith is already established. But how do people know? How are they going to see your light? When you go and do something, that kind of takes them back and they go, I don't understand why you would do that. That's that's not how the world operates. That's not tit for tat. That's that's not eye for an eye. That's not tooth for tooth. There's something different in that. Why did you do that for me? I didn't deserve that. that. That was good. I didn't expect that. They may see your good works. That's the first purpose of shining. You shine when you are observant and you are sensitive to the Holy Spirit and He leads you and you say, you know what, I'm going to do something here. It might be a conversation. It might be a way that you can help someone. It might be going out of your way. It might be sacrificial. It might be a divine appointment. All kinds of things. Throughout your week and throughout your day, you're going to be presented with opportunities to go above and beyond what the world would do, what the world would expect, and you can be different, and you can shine. And then it's not about, oh, what a great person that they are. Look how wonderful they are. This person, everybody's talking about you. You missed it. It's not about you. It's about making opportunities to talk to them and to let them understand and maybe they'll see the oil that is in you is from the Holy Spirit that causes you to burn and, and give that light. We talked about this last time with lamps. The lamp itself does not produce the light. The lamp would be like the housing on this on this uh, canned light here in the ceiling that you can see before you. It's just a housing. It just holds the bulb. And, and the bulb, you know, is the is where the current flows through. So think about that. In their day, it was an easy illustration because you had a a bowl that you would pour oil in and that would be your fuel and you would put a wick on it and light the wick and the fuel, is the oil, would travel through the wick and it would burn and produce light. The lamp is just the vessel. We're just the vessel. Jesus is the light. And His Spirit in us moves us and we ought to be seen by others. Discipleship is as visible as light in the night, as a mountain in the flatlands. To flee into invisibility is to deny the call. Any community of Jesus which wants to be invisible is no longer a community that follows him. Well said by one commentator. Salt is also used sacrificially. You see that in the law. Light is... Uh, is is just powerful. So purpose number one is that they may see your good works. What are you doing to make a difference? How are you actively engaged in this discipleship thing? How are you making a difference? How are you going about that? There's a second purpose, and Jesus says that they may see your good works, but it doesn't stop there, it goes beyond. And, And if you see, this is a dual purpose. And when I diagrammed it out, I put it on a purpose platform. There's there's a connector between it because there's two parallel purposes running side by side each other. One is that they might see your good works, and that wouldn't go unnoticed. And secondly, that it would lead them to do something about it. They'd see, and then they would give God glory. Interesting phrase. When you study that phrase, to give God glory, give God glory, it's interesting. Thoughts come to my mind about, um, well, there was a man that Jesus brought a lot of light into his life one time. In John chapter number 9, this man was born blind. And his disciples were so confused about it. Lord, who did sin, this man or his mother or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, you missed it. He was born blind for the glory of God. Unto God's glory was this man's condition. So Jesus heals this man. And he's rejoicing. But oh boy, you know, as, uh, we we're in trouble now, aren't we? Because he did it on the wrong day. I mean, there's only a certain day that you need to get, you know, get your physical eyes taken care of. And he just didn't know that. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's almost, it's laughable, isn't it? But this is how entrenched they were in their self-righteousness. They couldn't even see the truth staring them in the face And they didn't rejoice over this man. Now, they they played it up at the beginning, didn't they? I mean, they they, they really masked it, what they were really about. They, you know, asked kind of softly at first, but as it progressed, it got to the point where this man was dealing with excommunication from the Sanhedrin, from the the whole uh, synagogue, from the whole Jewish faith system, the orthodoxy of the day. He was being ousted from that simply because Jesus came by and gave him sight. And they're asking him one of the phrases they said. Give God glory. Come on now. <laughs> Tell the truth. Give God glory. When you see that phrase being used by men and coming out of men's mouths, you better watch out because there's a trap that's being laid. Another instance would probably be with Jesus and other of his followers, other, others that followed him. Anytime they're confronted with a religious leadership, that phrase, give God glory, it goes all the way back to, to Joshua in chapter number seven. That's where, you know, isn't it funny how things can start biblical and then men can rest them and twist them and turn them into iniquity? In Joshua chapter number 7, there was a man that was named Achan. Remember the story of Achan? And they were given specific instructions by God when they went into, into Jericho to not take anything. And he did. He took a wedge of gold, he took a Babylonian garment, he thought nobody would know. But all of a sudden they go against Ai and it's a tragedy at Ai when it should have been an easy accomplishment and Joshua is beside himself. I don't know what happened here. And the Lord whittles it down from the nation to the tribe, from the tribe to the family, from the family to the man. And before long, Joshua is standing before Achan and he says, come on now, give God glory. It's time to come clean. That they may see your good works unclean before God. Is it clicking now? Is it making sense a little better? Study it in Revelation. Every time you see this phrase, give God glory, it's connected with conversion. It's connected with repentance. That's the aim. By living for Jesus and living your life out through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not you that are converting people. The Holy Spirit works on them and they say, you know, there's something more than what's going on here. There's a God that you're going to answer before one day and you're in trouble for your sin. Look at this light. Isn't that appealing? Doesn't that make you yearn for God? God is light and him is no darkness at all. And so as we let our light shine, others say there's more to this life than just darkness and death. I'm tired of this. I want to give God glory. I'm getting right with him. I'm ready to get right with God. I'm going to get converted. They just might find Jesus. They just might get saved. They just might have a change of their mind that they're actually in trouble with God for their sin. and They might confess that before Him and pray and trust Jesus. Repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ and they get gloriously saved on their way to heaven. And then they find the true peace and the joy and the contentment that following Jesus brings. There's nothing like it. Don't miss the boat by being under a bushel. Don't miss the boat by being under the bed. Get out and let your light shine for two reasons, Jesus says. That others can see and then that they would give glory to God and get right with him.